0: Welcome to the Trusted Advisor Podcast, brought to you by Iroquois Group. Iroquois is your trusted advisor in all things insurance. I'm Edwin K. Morris. So first off, I want to start off with a a little contest here. I want you to identify this sound and tell me what kind of machine this is. Tell me what type of power saw this is.
1: Chainsaw.
0: What's the name brand of that saw? That's a, is it a, is it a, it's a still, yeah, it's a still. The second part of this is you have to identify what kind of wood this chainsaw is cutting. All right, get ready. So is that chainsaw cutting a pine tree, a red oak or a white oak? Cutting a pine tree. Yep. You're right. Yep. These guys are on it. Well done. I wanted to bring that all in there because I'm an old timber guy myself. Good, good. What is KDP and what does that stand for? KDP insurance. I'm sure it's some initials. What, What is all right, that? It stands
1: for Keith D. Peterson and Company Inc. We are incorporated wow. in 1946. Actually, we started in 1939 about a little more than 80 years ago. But KDP stands for Keith D. Peterson and Company, and can we find the initials easy to work with? Well, that sounds like a good way to get that started with the KDP folks. And is is it family business then? Well, would you like me to give you a little bit of history? Now, my dad came down here from Kansas City in 1939, working with the Atlas Mutual Insurance Company. He came to Shreveport, Louisiana to specialize in selling insurance on wood products accounts, primarily sawmills. At that time, the sawmill business was radically different from what you see now. They were small, not highly capitalized firms. Some of them didn't have a barker. Some of them were frame, uh, actually more frame than steel. And so he started writing fairly low-valued mills at high rates for the Atlas Mutual Insurance Company. And then he went to the Pacific in World War II and came back in 19. Around 45 and 46, he incorporated Keith D. Peterson and Company with his brother Ed, who had been in Germany in World War II. And we evolved from that point. And with the Atlas Mutual Insurance Company, we purchased the Atlas's Book of Business around 1982 and decided that we could have a better future as MGAs rather than as producing solely for the Atlas Mutual. And we evolved from that point to where we are today. Have you scaled and diversified to do more than just sawmits? One of the things that uh, we did early on, my my uncle, Ed, worked primarily outside the lumber arena. My dad focused on lumber accounts. He and Ed owned Keith D. Peterson Company together. But dad's uh, area of expertise was primarily in lumber and Ed's was in general insurance. And we continued to write all lines of insurance. Main Street business along with wood products. And we made a decision, my brother and I, who now own the company, made a decision in the late 70s to diversify even further. And rather than focus on lumber business, really try to expand the non-lumber side so that when we found ourselves in the midst of a recession or a depression in the lumber sector, then we wouldn't be hinged solely to the lumber industry. And it's worked out real well for us. I work primarily on the lumber side, my brother works on the general insurance side and kind of works with me on the lumber side.
0: Let's uh, fill everybody in here. What we're talking about with the lumber side versus not. So lumber and processing and anything from the raw product to a finished product or a semi-finished product, meaning you've got kilns, you're drying lumber, you're planing lumber, you're shaping lumber, what you're talking about is soup the nuts, you're talking logging forestry management all the way through the lumber process to a finished or semi-finished product. Not so much forestry
1: management. And not so much standing timber. Okay. From logging on through to the finished product, that's what we write. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned dry kills. You mentioned concentration yards, sawmills, planer mills, paddle manufacturers, furniture manufacturers. As long as it has lumber, then we can entertain the coverage. We can take a hard look at it and see if it fits our niche and if we want to provide the coverage. Got it.
0: So, how did you expand that business did it come pretty organically or did you have to really knock on some doors? We
1: had to really knock on some doors and I would tell you that if you looked at our history, one of our weaknesses up until a few years ago was on the marketing side. We had real good luck by word of mouth uh, we knocked on a lot of doors a lot of people liked what we did they would encourage other people to contact us and we grew primarily organically and we utilized word of mouth references. One of the things that Connor did mm. when Connor came on board was to focus on marketing. He got his MBA at uh, the Moore School of Business at, at University of South Carolina and specialized in marketing and that. And he's really helped us in that regard. So we're trying to not solely rely on word of mouth, but really get our product out there so that people can be more inclined to call us to show us what we can do for them. To go
0: back to your comment about when you said it I, I heard you were kind of future proofing yourself by this diversification because lumber is a fickle fickle thing yes very much when it's hot it's hot and when it's not it's not and the people that get into the business when it's hot they they're rushing out the doors they're like everybody's got a sawmill now and then it's like when it turns sour everything's for sale everything's closed and there's a few production places that are still plugging away it, that's got to be an unpredictable business for you. I mean, it, it no, just... it is
1: very much so. And you can say that about furniture yeah. manufacturing. You go in the Tupelo, Mississippi area, and when the furniture market's good, you see a lot of small furniture plants starting up. And then when it's bad, they're shutting down. And uh, you sell a lot of old schoolhouses converted to furniture plants or furniture mills. And uh, and then when the uh, when the market turns, all of a sudden they go out of business. You see that more on the furniture side. Than you do on the sawmill side. But one of the things that distinguishes sawmills is the fact that there's a lot of blood and sweat, toil, a lot of heart in the sawmill industry. And the sawmillers as a whole will try to weather those downtimes out a little bit better than some of the other manufacturers focusing on the need for wood. But it, that fact, notwithstanding, it is very cyclical and now, when you, when you look at the amount of hardwood board feed cut in 2008 versus 2012, I think there was about 12 million board feet cut in 2008. My years may be a little bit off on this, maybe 2005. And then by the time 2012 rolled around, it was down to five. So the lumber industry just got killed. And one of the good things right now is the fact that prices have been way up. The market's real, real good, although prices are starting to turn down just a little bit. But A lot of guys on the lumber side would tell you that, uh, that this may be the best year they've ever seen. Was there anyone that was like
0: a sawmill lumber, anybody from that vein in your family that brought this passion or did you guys just assimilate where the biggest opportunity was just because of location, geography? It's a
1: bit of both. My father, starting with my father, we've always had a passion for some reason, I can't tell you why it's not in our blood, but we've uh, we've had a passion for the lumber industry. We, we like it. We like the like the whine of the whine of that bandsaw when a pine log is is on the carriage running through the saw, and and you can you can look at a log going through a circle saw or a bandsaw being cut to boards, and it's almost therapeutic seeing that saw cut into the wood and forming into boards, and it goes around in the edger and comes back through the trim saw and ends up as a finished product. And you can sit there and look at that for an hour in a sawmill. and It's just kind of comforting in a way. I I saw my first sawmill when I was six years old. And I traveled with my father considerably when he looked at all these sawmills, many of which were small groundhog mills. And then as the industry evolved into bigger and more highly capitalized and finer mills, and just kind of Grew to like the sound and the smell and the feel of it and uh, found it very, very interesting. And I like the people in the business. They were very down to earth, solid people and enjoyed working with them. Uh, in the vast majority of cases, If they told you they do something then that's what they did. And I, I like that part of it very much.
0: My next question is, Was where did you find the sweet spot for you and what you're passionate about, and what your your father was passionate about? Where did you find that sweet spot?
1: What's the biggest and what's the smallest for you guys? That uh, can be a difficult question to answer because the answer I give you now would be different from what it was, say, 20 years ago. I've, I've been in this for over 40 years. Connor's been in it about five. And so In another five years, he'd probably give you a different answer as well. But right now, I would say that we would entertain looking at just about anything. With the market the way it is, the placement on a real high value mill, many of which we write, is more difficult because of reinsurance considerations than was the case, say, four or five years ago. A mill of values up to ten million dollars is a lot easier to place than a mill in excess of ten million dollars because the need for reinsurance is less as far as a sweet spot is concerned i would tell you that probably anywhere ranging from a minimum of uh uh, two or three million dollars and then in terms of sweet spot up to 20 million i want to hasten to say that that we write a lot of mills over 20 million dollars and we have real good luck writing them It's, it's just that the placement on the lower value mills right now is easier. I don't want anybody to be dissuaded from saying, well, the sweet spot's 20 million and under, because we have a lot of very big insureds on the books, and we don't want anyone to feel that we're not interested in writing those on a competitive basis.
0: I, I have to say that as a old timber guy myself, and my dad's favorite saying is that once you have sawdust in your hair, you can't get it out. And that is one thing that I've seen that most family-run businesses or family businesses is something that's a, it's it's not just prideful. It's in their DNA to a degree.
1: That's right. Yeah, awesome.
0: it really becomes not just a career choice but a lifestyle.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. With the evolution of the industry, you're seeing a lot of those smaller mills sell out mm. to bigger mills, and you don't see as many family-owned mills as used to be the case. Which, frankly, I hate to see, but that's just the mm-hmm. evolution of the business.
0: How did you choose who got the run, which section of the wood product lines as far as your own agency? Was there any kind of personal interest that drew somebody to a certain type of client?
1: You know, no one's ever asked me that question before. I've been in for a long time and I'm going to attempt to answer it (laughs) as briefly as I can. My brother and I both went to Georgia Tech. I'm, I'm older than my brother, but I went in the Marine Corps for three and a half years. So my brother started here about two years before I did. And when he started, there was more of a need for someone on the general insurance side. And so that's what he started in. And then when I came on board about two years later, there was a more of a need for someone on the wood product side. And that's what I happened to start doing. And I, I worked for the Fidelity Underwriting Agency, which was the underwriting authority mm. for the Atlas Mutual Insurance Company and for Keith D. Peterson and Company. I specialized in wood products. My brother... Specialized in general insurance, but each of us did get involved with the other mm-hmm. area of insurance. To wrap
0: things up, what would be your best advice for anyone thinking about starting a sawmill?
1: I would say just have your eyes open and realize it's very much a commodity. It's very cyclical. You may be tempted by the high prices right now and feel that you're going to make your fortune quickly. And then all of a sudden with the market downturn, you find that that it didn't turn out the way you wanted it to. I, I would say not be too highly leveraged. Uh, try to have enough capital behind you so that, mm-hmm. so that you can weather the bad times because there will be bad times. A, a good saw miller always has his eyes open for good equipment on the market, either through auctions or other means, and ends up getting a lot better deals on a carriage, mm-hmm. say, than good used carriage than would be the case if you bought one new. And that, I think that's real commonplace with anyone yes. making a go of it in the sawmill business.
0: Yeah, starting out on small potatoes as far as buying used equipment is definitely your safest route to
1: go. Exactly. And sure. think kind of wants to add something to that. One thing I wanted to, I'm going to pipe in here for just a second. Considering what's happened over the past 10 years, I don't think it would be very hard for somebody to get into this just because of the fact that there have been a lot of smaller mills that have shut down. And so, you know, it's possible that somebody's been sitting on a piece of property that mm. has a full sawmill already built on it, and they're just waiting for a buyer. So a lot of the work's probably already been done for them.
0: Well, thank you, gentlemen, for your time today. It's always fun talking about wood and wood processing. I appreciate your time. Well, i
1: tell you, it's what we do. We enjoy doing it. And, and you've asked some questions that spurred uh, my thinking process, and I hadn't been asked them before, and I, I, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this edition
0: of the trusted advisor podcast brought to you by Iroquois group, Iroquois, your trusted advisor for all things insurance. And remember, get out of the office and sell. I'm Edwin K. Morris, and I invite you to join me for the next edition of the trusted advisor podcast.